0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how local Holocaust survivors cope with 80 years of trauma. Nina Simone, Four Women, is the latest production at the Arizona Theater Company, Meet guest artist and director of Hamilton, Tiffany Nicole Green. And conversations with two authors featured at this weekend's Tucson Festival of Books, former NPR reporter Pam Fessler and comic book creator Henry Barajas. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Some of our friends and neighbors in Tucson carry inside them indelible and horrific memories, ones which must not be lost to the world when they leave it. According to the Tucson Jewish Museum and Holocaust Center, there are 70 Holocaust survivors currently living in southern Arizona. Next, the only local survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp, 97-year-old Tucson resident Bill Kugelman, will share his feelings with Itai Sofer.
1: In April, Jewish people around the world will observe Yom HaShoah, which commemorates the Holocaust and the dwindling number of survivors who are still with us. In the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp alone, more than one million Jews and members of other ethnic minorities were murdered. Bill Kugelman was only 20 when he was freed from confinement by the Allied forces. But even now, 77 years later, the memories of the death camps keep Kugelman awake at night.
2: I woke up the other day Biting my hand because somebody was violating me in the concentration camps.
1: Kugelman remembers that day in 1945, when the Allies freed him and other remaining family members from the concentration camps.
2: There was no enthusiasm. We were not greeting, I'm happy, I'll be free. All I knew, I was hungry and rags, and I lost a brother.
1: Despite a tattoo on his arm from Auschwitz still visible, Kugelman tries not to remind himself of the atrocities he experienced while still just a teenager.
2: You try to eliminate those thoughts in your daily life. You pretend you weren't there. Otherwise, you'll Go bonkers.
1: While still battling these memories, Tucson Holocaust survivors feel obligated to teach children about their experiences. 77-year-old retired elementary school teacher Teresa Dilgoff, born in 1944 during the Nazi invasion of Hungary, has devoted much of her time to Holocaust education in classrooms.
3: I went over to the middle schools from time to time. And sometimes when teachers went to other schools, but most of the time I stayed at Liberty
0: and Apollo. And I went every year and I talked about, so the kids know about it.
1: Dolgov believes that teaching kids about the Holocaust also involves recognizing the signs of discrimination and hate festering in a society.
3: Because they need to understand that
0: this happened. They need to understand that it starts little and it builds up, and don't, don't let it build up. I mean, you have to stop it before the ball starts rolling. I mean, Hitler didn't start killing. He started collecting them, then making them work, then making them target for things. He didn't do it. Eventually, it all
4: built up.
1: According to the Tucson Jewish Museum and Holocaust Center, In the almost 80 years since the end of World War II, Pima County has been home to at least 260 Holocaust survivors. Many of these survivors have interacted with each other each week in a Zoom discussion group led by Sharon Glassberg, a clinical therapist at Jewish Family and Children's Services of Southern Arizona.
3: They suffer quite a bit. Um, They suffer in their lives with survival guilt, they've suffered with anger. you know, just a lot of anger that has come out in different parts of their lives. When they're in a forum together, I think it's a a time for them to be lighter about it because they know each other and they know that each of them um, has gone through something that would be unimaginable to most people.
1: During these weekly discussions, survivors share details about their experiences that sometimes they haven't even shared with their children and grandchildren.
3: After you know the war, after liberation, um, as they became older and settled in their new communities, the thought was, let's put it all behind us. The thought was, let's pull up our bootstraps. Let's not talk about it. We have new lives to begin.
1: Glassberg worries about the future of the survivors' stories and says it is up to the generation that could hear their accounts to pass along the memory of the Holocaust.
3: I fear that when the survivors are gone, that we're not going to have the stories being told. We are empowering all of the students that when they hear a survivor, they are now responsible for telling that story.
1: For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Etai Sofer.
0: Nina Simone passed away in 2003. In her life, she was a thought leader and a force of nature who expressed herself primarily through music and poetry. One of her most famous songs lies at the center of a new production by the Arizona Theater Company. It's called Nina Simone, Four Women. In keeping with ATC's commitment to bringing guest artists of renown to their stages in Tucson and Phoenix, The director of this play with music is Tiffany Nicole Green. Her resume includes helming both new creations and classics in equal measure. Most notably, Green is also the director for one of the touring companies that is taking Hamilton, an American musical, to cities across the nation.
5: I'm an artist who's incredibly interested in and dedicated to humanity, societal change. I am a a social activist through my work. But mostly, I want to create opportunities for audiences to see themselves, to spend some time with our imperfections and our fears and our failures and really be able to connect and potentially either heal or understand someone in their life, you know, by way of these characters on stage.
0: I'd like you to look back in your life, Tiffany, and share with us the moment when you think you first became aware of who Nina Simone was and what her artistry involved.
5: So this is sort of a funny answer. There's an old movie called Point of No Return, and it's about this woman who's forced to be an assassin, from what I can remember. And um, she doesn't want to do it, but she has to, and she loves Nina Simone. She listens to it to calm her. And so that was really my introduction to Nina, this movie that had like so much of her music. And there are moments where this woman's like falling apart and she's playing Nina and she's pointing a gun out of a window. It's like really intense and crazy. And, um, and so that was really my introduction to Nina. And then I started to look up her videos and actually watch her perform, which I think is so different. I think to fully experience Nina, you need to pull up a video, you know, and watch her perform. She is, Everything that I say I want to do in my, in my work, she's gritty. She's honest. Sometimes it's ugly, and she's okay with that. Um, and she's in search of unearthing those imperfections and demanding better. In one of her interviews, she talks about looking at her audience, and she's like, when I look at them, I want them to know I know who they are. I see them. And she was talking about white audiences during a time where she was being very much discriminated against. And so... She's bold and unapologetic and beautiful, and that's where it started, and then that was the progression.
0: Uh, well, I can tell you from my experience as a jazz disc jockey, I would say the two most popular vocalists that people would request would be Billie Holiday and Nina Simone. And that uh, surprised me because Nina, yeah. despite the the power of her individual artistry, she was not as accepted in the jazz world, Billie Holiday more so than she. Um, yeah. She was viewed as... Um, Someone who was telling stories that were not deemed comfortable for audiences at the time, or now even. And the song for women would come up and people would say, I really want to hear that tonight. And I would always happily play it. I heard the lyrics so many times and each time I would find a new nuance to it. Or something would be happening in contemporary news involving uh, women's rights or racism, uh-huh. and and Nina would be there. She was. She already had a comment on that from forty years ago. So, yeah. so tell me how Four Women comes to life on stage. How is the play visualized?
5: It's supposed to be the next day after the September sixty three bombing, which is Sixteenth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham was blown up by the Klan, but there were four little girls inside who did die. The play takes place in the church the day after the bombing. That's what's written in the script. But I sort of took a poetic approach, and so I put us mid-explosion. So the the entire play takes place in an instant in my head so that we can always have that very present with us, that that is where we are. It starts off with Nina in there, but women uh, in different ways find their way into this church. And so including Nina, there ends up being four of them. There's a journey for all four of them in terms of coming to uh, terms with themselves, with each other, with their race, with racism, and sort of rediscovering freedom for themselves. And so by the end of the play, we arrive at Four Women, the song. And for me, that song is an embracing and a calling out of um, the different ways in which this country has completely pushed Black women into very specific corners and the ways in which we have pushed back.
0: Regardless of gender or race, what is something that you hope an audience member will feel inside them and take home with them after they've seen Nina Simone for women?
5: That we all still have work to do and we can never stop fighting. We can never stop. There will always be work to do. We can't get comfortable.
0: My guest was Tiffany Nicole Green, director of Nina Simone, Four Women, appearing now at the Arizona Theater Company at the Temple of Music and Art through March 19th. Performances in Phoenix run March 24th through April 10th. The complete schedule is at arizonatheater.org. The Tucson Festival of Books will be taking over the UA campus this coming Saturday and Sunday, presenting hundreds of authors and vendors, all invested in celebrating the written word. Next, we'll introduce you to two authors who will be appearing this coming Sunday. First, a familiar voice to longtime NPR listeners, journalist Pam Fessler. Her book, Carvel's Cure, tells the story of a place in Louisiana that housed and treated people living with Hansen's disease, also known as leprosy, for more than 100 years. It is also the place where a cure for the disease was discovered. Pam Fessler is interviewed by her former NPR colleague, current AZPM reporter Duncan Moon.
4: Pam, I'd like to start by asking you to read a selection from the book. Um, It's at the very beginning. I think it really dramatically lays out the fear, the cruelty, the stigma that has always seemed to be attached to leprosy, and I guess what we now call Hansen's disease. I understood all of this in a sort of abstract sort of way, but this paragraph really brings it all to life for me. So if you'll read that, I'd appreciate it.
6: Sure. Clara Mertz arrived in New Orleans in February of 1893, locked in a Southern Pacific boxcar and listed as freight on the Bill of Lading. When she got there, the train car was quickly emptied and disinfected, and the young woman was loaded into a carriage to be taken to the city's pest house on Hagen Avenue. The pest house was really just a collection of decaying wooden shacks located on a muddy piece of land on the outskirts of town and surrounded by rotting trash, Everything was done with the utmost secrecy, for if word got out about the new arrival, it would be
4: disastrous
6: for the railroad. Only a few officials with the Southern Pacific knew the truth about their cargo, that the 22-year-old woman had leprosy.
4: So Clara Mertz was one of the first to be detained later on at the Louisiana Leper Home, what later became known as Carville. When that first group stepped off the barge in the dark at, at what was then a dilapidated old sugar plantation, What did they find there?
6: Well, it it was really actually quite extraordinary. Um, The state had purchased this plantation to put the leper home because they couldn't find any place um, inside uh, New Orleans, which is where they wanted to locate it, because people didn't want people with leprosy anywhere near them. So when they got to this plantation which was about 70 miles um, up the river from New Orleans, the patients found there was an abandoned mansion. It was rat and snake infested. It was basically unlivable. And the patients had to be put in the old slave quarters. They were actually more livable than the mansion. And essentially the, the patients were left to fend for themselves. I mean, it was a mosquito infested area. The neighbors in the area were actually very hostile when they found out that the state had brought leprosy patients to this old abandoned plantation. They had been told, in fact, that it was going to be an ostrich farm.
4: So people came down to the to the dock to see the ostriches come in, and were were shocked to see what they what they found.
6: Exactly, <laughs> but it was the only way they could buy the plantation. The state could buy the plantation.
4: Absolutely amazing. Now we know now that Hansen's disease is one of the least Contagious diseases and on top of that pretty much 95 percent of human beings have a natural immunity to it So um, and as you say in the book not one medical worker or staff member um, Became infected at Carville during its more than 100 years of operation Yet the fear the, the misinformation the scorn they've all stuck to the disease like like perhaps no other Do we know why that is?
6: I think part of it was ignorance people did not know it was hardly contagious. Um, There was a belief, um, especially around the turn of the century between the the, uh, 1800s and the 1900s, that it was highly contagious. And that was partly because the germ theory was just emerging where people and and science recognized that germs could transmit um, from one person to another. So there was great fear of a lot of contagious diseases at the time people might develop very ugly modules on their skin, Um, they can get claw-like hands, they can go blind, and it can be scary in a very advanced case. We also had prejudice at the time against immigrants. This is around the turn of the century, and there was this belief that immigrants coming into the United States, that they were also bringing in um, deadly diseases. And people used that to um, denigrate certain groups of immigrants, especially those who came from Asia. And leprosy was caught up in that campaign. And then we just have the mythology that has followed leprosy for centuries. Um, And a lot of it goes back to the Bible, in which people were with leprosy, it was depicted as a sign that this was a reflection of somebody being morally uncleaned and somebody who needed to be banished from the community. Scholars now believe that what was described or what is described as leprosy in the Bible actually was referring to another disease, other skin diseases, because it's actually not at all like
4: leprosy. So for much of its existence, it seems like Carville was more of a a prison or a a detention center, you know, a place of isolation, loneliness. People had to leave their families on short notice. Sometimes they never saw their families again. So much more of that that prison sense rather than a place of, of healing. And yet for others, it was also a refuge. You know, they found some sort of solace and fellowship there. Can you explain that dynamic
6: People were confined there. Some of them were brought there in shackles. There was a, um, a fence around the grounds. So this, this plantation was about 350 acres, but there, it was all fenced in. There was barbed wire on the top, and, and you weren't supposed to leave. And if patients did and were caught, they were actually put in a jail inside Carville as punishment. But that said, it was simultaneously a haven for a lot of these patients. And that's because the world outside was very cruel to people with leprosy. But inside the grounds of what we call Carville, because that was the name of the town where it was located, um, they were with other people who did not look down upon them, who, did, who treated them as, as human beings and were not repulsed by the fact that they had leprosy. Many of these patients, they actually knew it was not that contagious. They could see that the people around them, the the nurses and, and the doctors were not getting um, uh, the disease. They knew it wasn't that um, that contagious. The federal government took over this facility in 1921, and it became the national leprosarium for the United States. They introduced a lot of activities. They had movies there were plays, dances, softball teams. They allowed the patients to build a whole world inside. So this was their community. This was their home. And so there was this kind of juxtaposition of it being a very tragic place, but also a very comforting place. Plus, people got good health care there.
4: It became the place where this cure was developed,
6: well, I think you know, part of it was that it was run by the federal government. It was actually the U.S. Public Health Service. There were doctors there. There was a, a hospital. There was a laboratory. So it was actually in the 1940s that the doctors at Carville started experimenting with a new drug called Promin. It was like an antibiotic. At first, it didn't work. Um, they tried it with a few patients. But gradually over the next few months, some of the patients started almost miraculously getting better. Patients that had these lesions all over their faces, the lesions began to disappear. The numbness that some of them felt in their um, hands and their and their legs started to go away. It didn't work for everyone, but it, it did work for some people. And it was really the beginning of what we call, people called it the miracle of Carville, and it's the beginning of the treatment that we now use today that that in fact can cure the disease.
4: Well, let's come around full circle. So we started with Clara Mertz and her arrival in New Orleans. Whatever happened to Clara Mertz? What was her final um, disposition?
6: When she was first put on this barge from New Orleans to go up to what would be the new leprosy hospital run by the state, some reporters actually... Wrote a story about the patients being transported, and one of the reporters said that Clara Mertz looked so sick that it was almost certain she would not last, you know, maybe maybe another year at the most. She, in fact, did last uh, and lived for about 10 more years before she died. And she is buried, actually, at the um, Carville Hospital, which is still there today. It now is a one national historic site, but it's also a National Guard site run by the state of Louisiana. And there is a museum there where people can go and... It's a pretty extraordinary place.
0: Henry Barajas is a Tucson native, a comic book writer, editor, and creator, who scripted stories ranging from epic fantasy to an autobiography of his great-grandfather, who was also a local legend. Barajas also wrote a free mini-comic featuring Marvel's The Avengers. It was given away to kids in New York City who received their COVID vaccinations. Now living and working in Los Angeles, the Tucson Festival of Books gives Henry Barajas a chance to reconnect with family, friends, and his favorite hometown landmarks.
7: I am the author of La Voz de Mayo, the Rambo, a collaboration I did with Jay Gonzo, and the uh, co-creator and co-author of Helm Grey Castle, a Latinx fantasy graphic novel. Uh, the short elevator pitch for that is uh, What If Mordor Had a South Side?
0: <laughs> that was my next question: Is how would you say that a Latinx perspective comes to play when you're writing high fantasy? Give us a, a little bit more on that.
7: When I was a kid, I was a huge fan of fantasy. I loved Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't until I started playing D and D with some friends that uh, I started looking through the source books and looking through all the mythology, and I, I didn't really see myself in it in an age where a representation matters. So I wanted to find a way that was logical and fun, including some Mesoamerican history. And while I was doing research for La Voz de Mayo, I saw that the Yaquis were documented by Spanish settlers during the Inquisition. So I have never known that. And it also got me to thinking that I never knew anything about Mesoamerican history. So while researching that, I realized, oh, this really lends well to a fantasy movie or genre. And I wanted to find a way to incorporate that. So the, the idea was, what if, Spanish conquistadors didn't conquer Mexico. What if the Aztecs uh, and the neighboring villages uh, beat Cortez and were able to thrive a little longer? And what if just above them was this magical fantasy world and these two things clash?
0: When you were writing about your grandfather's story, what were the bigger challenges that you faced in that format? Um, Having to collect together historical documents, perhaps, or even do interviews with uh, elder members of your family?
7: Yeah, all of that. (laughs) Because uh, the tradition of Native American and even Mexican American uh, and indigenous people is a lot of the stories you hear are verbal, oral history. Growing up as a kid, I heard from my family that my great-grandfather, Ramon Jauriga, did so many good things. He helped his community, but they never really had any proof. And as an aspiring journalist and someone who actually got to work at the Arizona Daily Star, one of the things I learned and heard in the newsroom was an old saying was, if your mother says she loves you, get a second source. So <laughs> all the things that my family told me, I would have to go and try to double-check. I'm not trying to change history with what I was trying to do was a show aside that I felt was not properly documented. Ramon Jaurigue co-founded the La Voz de Mayo organization to help uh, the Pascua tribe uh, communicate with the local government. I was able to meet with Congressman Morel Grijalva, and he had so many positive things to say about Ramon's community activism, how he even helped him get his start. So it took four years of research, of going to the University of Arizona Library, to the public library downtown, talking to my family, who was very torn on whether we should tell this story or not, because they had a lot of uh, mixed feelings with uh, the tribe, because Ramon was never properly recognized, and the people of Mayo, it was a community effort. The more I learned, and the more questions I kept answering and kept coming up with, new questions from all these answers, I I began to feel a weight And I was glad that I was able to work with Jay Gonzo, who is an amazing storyteller and was able to help me actualize it. Yeah, it was very difficult, but at the end of the day, really um, beautiful. And and I I feel very lucky that I got to have that kind of connection with uh, Ramon before he passed away and tell his story and have something for my family to hand down if a kid is interested in what... What their family was all about, they can they actually can have points to something and actually give them some facts and a cohesive story.
0: When you meet a youngster that kind of reminds you a little bit of a young Henry Barajas, what do you want to say to that kid about following their dreams and also applying themselves to their art?
7: I say to them, they can do anything. If I can make comics, it's possible for anyone. I don't come from much and everything i have in this comic book industry is because i've worked hard for it i want them to know that whatever they want to do in comics or whatever they want to do artistically is possible it's just it's not going to happen as quickly as you want it and it's not going to it's not going to be as easy but it's possible and it's and it's in it, doing it will always feel better than wondering and never have done it at all
0: Both Pam Fessler and Henry Barajas will be holding presentations and book signings on Sunday, March 13th at the 2022 Tucson Festival of Books. You can find the complete schedule at tucsonfestivalofbooks.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Etai Sofer. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
5: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.